0: Our text this morning is just two verses of Scripture from the 16th chapter of the Gospel of John, and the verses are 12 and 13. If you have your Bible, your New Testament, I'd like for you to turn to the 16th chapter of John's Gospel, verses 12 and 13. Jesus is speaking to his disciples, and he says, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak and He will disclose to you what is to come." I want you to picture in your mind this morning a mental picture of a man with a weight problem. And if you can't get that mental picture, just look up here, you know, toward the pulpit. And uh, once you get this picture of uh, this man with a weight problem in your mind, here he is. He knows that given his height and um, his build that he carries too much weight. His um, doctor is on him all the time when he goes to get his annual checkup, warns him they'd better lose some weight. His wife needles him every day, and almost every day he sees in the newspapers and on television these ads that remind him to count calories but he doesn't hear or heed. He just keeps on eating his chocolate fudge sundaes and his midnight snacks. One day he's at the office, and there comes this sharp, stabbing pain around the heart. And he's forced to fight for every breath. He feels his arms getting numb, and he slumps across the desk, pale and weak and frightened. In a little while, he's in an ambulance that's screaming through the traffic to Mercy Hospital. And after a few days, he's kind of stabilized. His cardiologist comes and sits down on his bed and looks him in the eye and says, Mr. Jones, it's time for us to talk about counting calories, losing weight, and getting exercise. And our friend hears and heeds because life has brought him to what psychologists like to call a teachable moment. God has so many things he'd like to say to us. He is a living, active, busy, self-revealing God. Someone said that you can sum up the Bible in one word, God speaking, and the word is, here. Call unto me, and I will answer thee. But it is we who are so unready and unwilling to listen. While God was saying his most dramatic word, men gambled for his garment. And Jesus said to his disciples, Men, I have a lot of things I'd like to tell you, but you're not able to bear them now. That word rendered bear is not in the sense of tolerate or endure. It's in the sense of carry, and the metaphor is that of a weight. It might be gold, but it's still a weight, and the muscles are not strong enough to sustain it. It crushes rather than gladdens. And Jesus, knowing that these disciples did not have the strength to, to to bear the new words or the capacities to receive them, was lovingly reticent and did not tell them all that he wanted to tell them. And there's a principle that runs through this, and it's this, that revelation is marked or measured by the capacities of the men who receive it, and the law of readiness is a fundamental law of life. It seems like no one would ever resist the warning that comes to us through the prophet Isaiah, seek ye the Lord while He may be found. Now that doesn't mean that God likes to play hide and seek with the people He created, or that He darts in and out of history or that He enjoys being capricious with His creatures. It just means that we're so frequently preoccupied with other things that we miss the voice of God and we miss Him. In short, it means that we're not always teachable. Teachable moments, when do they come? They're often as unpredictable as the wind of the Spirit They cannot be commanded or controlled, but I think that there are times and places when and where we can look for teachable moments. I want to share those with you. We can look for teachable moments in the seasons of our personal frustration and failure. It's a strange, almost paradoxical truth that our failures are more useful to God, frequently more useful to God than our successes. That is especially true of the children of Israel. They were nearer to God in the narrow places than in the wide. Frustrations become so fruitful because they bring us to the end of ourselves and they let us know that there is no energy or power or strength apart from his. I've always had the highest admiration for Alcoholic Anonymous, this group. And I think if a guy's got a problem with alcohol, he should look there first for help. But I used to wonder why this organization didn't become more aggressive, I mean recruit these guys with alcohol problems. I mean, go down on the streets and get a guy and say, hey, we can help you, buddy. You come with us. We're going to help you. Then I have learned, since I have learned, that nobody can ever really get help until he comes to the place where he's willing to acknowledge his need for that help and reach out for it. For most of us have the tendency of You know, rationalizing or finding excuses or becoming defensive and frustrations bring us to the place where we can say to God, God, I don't have a problem. I am a problem. It's not my brother, not my sister. It's me, oh Lord, that's standing in the need of prayer. When something goes wrong in your life, I mean, when you go wrong, do you have the tendency to shift the blame somewhere else or pass the buck? If you're like the rest of us, you probably do. A modern revision of an old adage might state, it matters not whether you win or lose, but where you place the blame. The blame game is the most popular game in the world and the oldest. I mean, they played that game in the garden. And Adam said, This woman you gave me, she's the one responsible for me eating of this fruit. And uh, God must have said in the typical paraphrase, Oh, come on, Adam. She didn't force you to take that fruit, and she didn't move your jaws up and down or swallow it for you. And Adam said, This woman you gave me gave me of this fruit and the last statement he made was more honest than he probably intended and i did eat you remember what those words that shakespeare put in the mouth of cassius the fault dear brutus lies not in our stars but in ourselves do you understand the good news that i'm telling you If your life is not going like you want it to, you have direct and ready access to the one who is responsible. The prodigal son came to that in the far country. There he was in this terrible depression, broke and living like pigs. What did he do about it? Did he blame God? No, God didn't put him there. Did he blame some nebulous thing called society or the government? No, they had little to do with it. Did he blame his high living friends? No, that wouldn't have done any good. He got to the source of the problem. He came to himself and he said, I'm going back and say to my father, I have sinned. That failure, that frustration of the far country brought him him to the place where he was open to the father's love. So fruitful frustrations are fruitful. Case in point, Simon Peter, what a failure on the night of Jesus' betrayal. What frustration in the cross experience. But I want you to know that Jesus taught him more in the three hours of that frustrating night and the next day than he was able to teach him in three years of public ministry. Arthur Cronin was probably right when he said, "The greatest day of your life is the day when you fall upon your knees and smite your breast and tell all your sins to God, for the Holy Spirit will never fill a life until it's emptied of self." We can look for teachable moments in extended illnesses. They are they are rich with teachable moments you say well how do you say that well because illness oftentimes is a humbling experience you ever been to the hospital how humbling is it well I'm not just talking about when you go to pay your bill that's humbling in itself but how much opulence can one display from a hospital room and how much how elegant can elegant can somebody look who's wearing one of those hospital gowns. I mean, all the status symbols are removed. All the titles are taken down off the doors. And you sleep in the same beds, on the same sheets, you use the same charts, and you eat the same food that everybody else does. In the hospital, the ground certainly is level. Have I ever told you about the time I went to the hospital? At ease, I'm not going to tell you about my surgery or Uh, I'm not going to show you any scars, but I did go to the hospital one time. I was checking in. And the lady said, what is your occupation, sir? And I said, I'm a pastor of First Baptist Church. And she said, oh, you know, as though that mattered nothing. They took me to the room and they brought in this hospital gown, you know, one of those horrible looking things. She said, put this on. I said, I'm pastor of First Baptist Church. She said, That's all right, preachers look great in these hospital gowns. They don't have to wear any ties. I put it on. Now those things were designed for people that walk backward, you know, forever. And I was lying in that hospital bed, and in comes this crusty nurse to give me a shot. And I started rolling up my sleeve. She said, no, I want to give you this shot in your hip. I said, I'm the pastor of First Baptist Church. She said, I don't care if you're a pastor of First Baptist Church, then she said, no, I better not tell you, you know, exactly what she said. What a humbling experience. (laughs) Besides all that, it gives you time to think. It's an amazing thing, but proven again and again that the things of this world are better seen when you're lying on your back facing up and if a person wants to get a good look at himself, he needs to look in water that's still, rather than that which is than water that is running. And so the psalmist said, "He maketh me to lie down." And that psalmist was a shepherd who knew that he got his sheep up as early as 4 o'clock in the morning and they started grazing, moving slowly along. By 10 o'clock, the sun was screaming down in heat and the, and the sheep were hot and tired and thirsty. The wise shepherd knows that they must not drink while they're hot or while there's a, this undigested Uh, grass in their their stomachs, and so he makes them lie down. He maketh me to lie down. You'll never get a vision of God until you're still. And the great men who have learned to walk with God, you studied them, are the people who've come from the deserts. Elijah by the brook of Kirith, and Paul in Arabia, and Moses on the backside of Midian by the burning bush, all had their encounters with God in the stillness of that desolation. There's no poetry written on busy street corners. Men find God when they're still. And so a long-extended illness can be fruitful because for the first time it gets us alone in face-to-face face with God. Now there are a lot of speculation about Paul's thorn in the flesh. It's my opinion, that's probably a physical illness. My opinion matters little. What do they people say about his thorn in the flesh? Some say, well, God never intends for anybody to ever be ill. If you'll pray with enough faith, you'll be well. Some say, well, you know, tell that to Paul. Some say that, that men's illness is because he's not right with God get right with God and you'll be well tell that to Paul what he think about it this is what he thought about it he said my thorn my infirmity is an in order that God's strength might be perfected and what was his attitude toward it he rejoiced in it because he knew that in his weakness God was being made strong in his life and as Dr. McGarman says he knew that the Thorn room, T-H-O-R-N room, was just a way station on the way to the throne room. And beyond all that, illness helps us to realize our dependency upon each other. I know some folks who think, Man, I don't need anybody. Here's the guy in the corporate headquarters in Atlanta, Georgia. He's a prime mover. He's a self-starter. All he's got to do is push a button, and a guy in Los Angeles jumps takes notice some illness comes and he's put flat on his back he's at the mercy of some little freckle-faced nurse who's just got her cap the only thing that stands between him and a good night's sleep is this little girl and he knows if she fouls up he spends a night in pain he realizes how dependent he is upon another and beyond that we realize how dependent we are upon God. I'd like to tell you how many people I've talked to in the years I've been a minister who have said to me, I'm ill and I don't know what I can do about it. I've got the best doctors and I know that my illness is beyond my help. If I, have, if I ever get well, if I live, it'll be up to God. Theologians... We're always trying to tell us why people believe in God. Let me tell you why they believe in God. Because they realize they're neither self-made nor self-sustaining. Faith begins, my friend, when you realize you're not God. We can look for teachable moments, not only in extended illness. We can look for teachable moments in in the death of a loved one. Now, we don't like things to change. We'd like for things to remain just as they are. We resist change. We want every present to be eternalized. Here's a father giving his little boy his goodnight bedtime story. He said, let me tell you a story, son, about this man who lived in this big white house on the hill, beautiful house, Blue shutters tells the story. The next night he takes the little boy to bed, and the little boy said, Daddy, tell me on good night stories again. He said, okay, let me, let me tell you. He said, I want to hear again that story about that man lived in that house on the hill. So the father said, well, this man lives in this big white house on the hill. had green shutters. The boy said, no, it wasn't green shutters. It was blue shutters. We don't like things to change. We get accustomed to the familiar, familiar sounds and sights and places. And death comes. We have to change. Death comes to remind us that there is nothing permanent on this earth. Death comes to remind us of the transient nature of all creation, And we keep on trying to convince ourselves that we're going to be here forever. Death comes to remind us that we're not here forever. We're just pilgrims passing through. And as the author of the book of Hebrews said, there is no abiding city. And I think that the death of a loved one is a is rich with teachable moments because it enables us, it causes us to look above and get a glimpse of the glory of the eternal sometime for the first time. And so the sixth chapter of the book of Isaiah begins like this. In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Now some theologian might say to you, The reason why he put in the year that King Uzziah died is because he just just put that there to date his experience. I don't think we can say that. I think that what happened was that this great prophet, driven by a profound sense of sorrow because of the loss of his friend the king, that he went into the temple, overcome by the grief of of that death, and for the first time he saw God in all of his glory. It's a teachable moment. We can look for teachable moments in the the friends who reach out to us in love. How does God speak to, to you? How does He speak to us? Well, there are many ways, and I try to share that with the little ones. But one way that God speaks to us is through others. And oftentimes the most profound word God ever says, He says through the love that reaches out from another person. Here you are in your house. There's a tragedy that's come to your life and you're just immersed in the crucible of that suffering, sorrow. There comes to your door a knock. You go to the door, and there stands a friend with a dish of food, a bouquet of flowers, and God says to you, the Holy Spirit says to you, I love you, here I am. You don't have to do your grief work alone. Or you err. You make a terrible mistake. You sin. And you're overwhelmed with the grief of that and the shame of that. And one day somebody comes and puts his arm around you. I mean somebody you greatly admire. Somebody whose life is the epitome of Christ. And when he puts his arm around you and kind of gives you a little nudge of encouragement, you hear the Father say, Welcome back, son, from the far country. I loved you while you were there. Now I'm the God of the second chance. Let's begin again a teachable moment. Helen Keller knew that. This blessed woman who was blind and mute and deaf wrote in her biography, listen carefully to this profound statement. I knew, she wrote, the depths where love was not. and darkness covered the face of all things, my life had no beginning, no future and death was a consummation devoutly to be wished. Then one day from the fingers of a hand of love, words fell into my hands that clutched at emptiness, and my heart leaped with the joy of living. I have not understood the mystery of my darkness, but I have found the overcoming of it because of love. It's a teachable moment. When somebody reaches out to you and love, not only do they say, I love you, but God is saying through them often, you don't have to do this by yourself. You've listened so well. One last word, please. We need to be sensitive to the teachable moments of others, especially our children. Herbert Spencer said that if physical maturity is marked by our our ability to produce offspring, then mental maturity is marked by our ability to train those offspring. Let me say a word about, let me say a good word for those sensitive, teachable moments that come like fleeting flashes. We all... Would like to go back and redeem teachable moments that were lost. Martin Buber the great philosopher told about one day a boy came into his office wanted to talk. Buber said I'd listen but I really didn't I was busy I was just hoping he'd hurry up and get out and go on I was busy. He said the boy sensed it and he went out and killed himself. Said Martin Buber I always have time now for those who clutch at me, but I can do nothing about that boy. Those teachable moments that come, how tragic it is that we're not ready when our children are. Here's a little girl who comes kind of soldering it into the kitchen, her mother's fixing the the dinner. And she just kind of shifts back and forth. She's been kind of rejected by a playmate. And that wise mother sensing that teachable moment takes off her apron. The spaghetti and meat sauce can wait. Or here's a little boy who's gotten an altercation with his neighbor, the neighbor boy. Or he's seen, he's seen his neighbor die. He comes in, his father, sensing that little boy is... Receptivity lays down his paper. Wise father. It's a daddy kind of boy. Daddy kind of father. I heard a preacher tell that he is watching on television the Munich Olympic Games. And they watched as many of us did. That, Israel, that uh, uh, Arab uh, death squad went into Munich and killed those Israelis. And he said, a little boy was sitting there watching that on television. And he said, Daddy, why are they, why do they want to kill those, those athletes, those Israeli athletes, this uh, uh, a Palestinian death squad? And the father said, Bam, what a moment. He said, I got my Bible down. And he said, I got the children around. And I taught them out of the scripture why. There had been this war. And he said, then I turned to that passage in Ephesians, and I taught how when Jesus comes, all the walls of petition, middle walls of petition that divide men will come down. And in him there is no Jew or Gentile, no male or female, no rich or poor. Teachable moment. Now, I believe in a formal education. I have one. It might surprise you, but I do. But I'm here to tell you that more can be taught in that sens- sensitive, teachable moment that comes than can be taught in a year in public education. If we grasp it. Now, what has God been trying to tell you? While God declared His greatest word, men in oblivion gambled for His garment and heard Him not. And when we are standing before God and are judged, We are going to be judged not only on the basis of what we heard and did not heed. We're going to be judged on the basis of what we could have heard but didn't. And so God speaks. And Rabbi Susha, when he thought of that, this great rabbi taught in the Synagogues of New York City. It is said of him that when he'd read the scripture which said, and God said, that he'd get so excited about that he couldn't even teach his class and he'd run outside. Everybody thought he was crazy and he'd shout, God said, God said. What is God saying to you? To those of us who are separated from him without Salvation without Christ, God is saying, this is your plea. This is the last. This is the day of salvation. Now is the appointed time. Seek ye the Lord while He may be found. For those of us who have drifted away from God in our commitments, He is saying, it's time now to come back to your first love. What is God saying to you and what are you going to do about it in response? What a big question. Now I'm going to pray and ask the Holy Spirit, just like Jesus said, to come and to guide you. And if you'll read the verses in the context prior to that, He said, when the Holy Spirit comes, He will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment to come. Sin because you believe not on me. Righteousness because I go to the Father. Judgment because the Prince of this world is already judged. I'm going to ask the Holy Spirit to guide you to the decision His voice calls you to make. Would you join me in prayer? Father, I thank you that this is such a precious and teachable moment. And we're so sensitive and aware that you're in our midst today and have had such a, such a word to say to us. And I pray, Father, that we'll not be like one who looks into a mirror, sees his reflection, and then turns away and does nothing. That we'll be doers of the word and not hearers only. And I pray, God, if there's sin in our life, if there's a decision to be made, that we'll make that kind of thing that you desire of us right now. Because I pray in his name and for his sake. Now the three invitations are these. Listen, listen, please. If you've never confessed your faith in Jesus Christ, you've never accepted him as your personal Savior. God has been speaking to you before the foundation of the world. He has spoken His final word in the revelation of His Son. And the Holy Spirit comes today and says, This is God's Son. Believe Him. And the unpardonable sin, the only sin God cannot forgive, is for you to reject that word that Jesus is God's Son. That's the only sin He can't forgive. Come this morning, confessing your faith in Jesus Christ. Tell him you want to be saved. Ask our counselors, How, help me to be saved this morning. Come to Christ. It might be your last opportunity. The second invitation is for you to come and place your life in the New Testament church. Is God leading you to do that? Why would you wait if God wants you to do that? Or maybe you just need to come to say, you know, I've had so many things happening to me in the past. And these last days, especially, or months, God is bringing me to a new point, a new step, a new level, a new walk. And I want to make public commitment to that today. Whatever God leads you to do, wouldn't you be willing to do it? After all, He's sovereign Lord. Let's stand and our choir sings on the first word you come. Come on.